just delivered a little tiny house over there today. That's kind of crazy, right? So uh, we're in the process of building here. So if you see that, um, it is supposed to be there, I think. And we're excited about what that means in the future. Uh, in the meantime, we are grafted. We're the College Ministry of Faith Bible Church. And we exist to help college students know Jesus Christ. And we want to help you in, in your pathway, in your process of having a relationship with God. We come every week and we open the Bible and we just explain what the Bible says. And right there in the Bible is the key to knowing God and understanding him. I got to turn myself down. Elijah, where are you at, man? Okay. Was he just up here? Test. Okay. You guys. I'm in a box. Yeah, give me a little less. I'll make it work. Uh, so a couple of quick announcements as we get going. Uh, next Friday night is a different night. Uh, our high school ministry has an event that they call Mystery Night. It happens every year right around spring break. And, and as such, it's kind of a car, uh, car rally scavenger hunt. As such, we are not going to have our normal meeting here. It's going to be a night off unless you want to serve at Mystery Night. If you're a senior, you're probably out going, just killing it, trying to, am I right, Brody? Trying to go win the, the biggest trophy of glory of all time. But if you're not and you want to be here, we have a station. Plug your ears, seniors. <laughs> we have a station right here at this house. It's going to be super fun. It is, uh, is sports-themed, and there's some crazy, wacky, cool stuff going on. So if you want to be here, there's a barbecue that's going to be going on. There's going to be about 200 high school and junior high kids running in and out of the backyard. If you just want to serve our body, then you can sign up tonight with Logan Scott, which is he's right over here, um, and you can get signed up today. But other than that, uh, next week is a night off. Cool? Okay. There's something else I was supposed to talk about, but I can't remember what it is. If I remember Jonah, I will tell you. I, actually, I will say this. Uh, uh, some of my study time for the week got gobbled up and uh, by a lot of uh, counseling issues and a few other things happening in life, including Tracy ripping her toenail off this afternoon. So we were in the, in the urgent care um, getting dialed in. Yeah, it's crazy. I'll show you pictures. It is gnarly. So we are going to be um, looking at something outside of Genesis this evening, and I'm excited about that. Uh, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. And I want to tell you the story of a man named Ralph Maloon. When he was seven years old, his dad founded a company called Correct Craft in the year 1925. This company pioneered the current water ski boat and eventually the wakeboard boat. Now, just out of curiosity, anybody here ever water skied? Where are my water skiers? Yes. Yes. Where are my wakeboarders? Excellent. Very good. How about wake surfers? That's what I'm talking about. It's really good. Okay. Well, this company um, that started as Correct Craft grew, uh, in 1945, they were approached by the U.S. government for help. Middle of World War II, and, and the Allied forces were closing in on Hitler, but they were having a hard time getting across the Rhine River into Germany. And the issue was there's a strong current, and the transport boats to get the soldiers from one side to the other could only go about six miles an hour, making them basically sitting ducks for the, for the German snipers. And so as they're moving across... They're just, getting, they're just getting plucked. So General Eisenhower comes to Correct Craft and says, we need you to make 400 transport boats in the next 15 days. 
which was a staggering request. No assembly lines, nothing like we have today. And so they worked round the clock six days a week. They took Sundays off um, and they got it done. The boats that they made held 11 soldiers, could hit speeds of 35 miles an hour. And on the night of the prearranged attack, starting at midnight and every hour after, they released um, uh, 100 boats at a time going across the river. These guys got across and were able to go into German territory. And this was part of the offensive surge that was one of the major factors that led to the close of World War II. After the war, correct craft continued making boats and became the most successful ski and wakeboard boat manufacturer in the world. Some of you that know boats will recognize their name. It's called Nautique. Anybody heard the name Nautique? Some of you have. Some of you are like, I don't care. But imagine the difference between a Toyota and a BMW or really a Toyota and like a Bentley. Okay, like th there is just a pretty broad spread here. They are the Bentley. And the name Nautique became synonymous with quality and innovation. They were selling their boats for three grand in 1960. And right now, if you went on their website, it's like you could get a boat for $250,000. It's crazy. Family owned, family operated. They bring in over $250 million a year in revenue. Boats, who knew? Now, Ralph Maloon traveled to over 80 countries, sat with kings and princes, sultans and sheiks, prime ministers, and the like, selling boats. Pretty crazy. And I would say by the world standards, if you looked at this man, Ralph Maloon has it all. I think he's an American success story. Um, he is probably, by definition, maybe I would say, a happy man. Like, he, he had a happy, successful life. He has money, success, power, influence. I got to meet this guy a few years ago at 96 years old, healthy, still enjoying the fruit of his labors. The guy's got everything. Let me ask you a question. What would it take to make you happy? You're like, okay, well, a $250,000 boat would be a start. That'd be cool. Um, but think about it. What, what do you need to truly be happy? If I just had this, then I would be happy. For most, the answer is probably some type of material possession, maybe. It could be some type of physical pleasure, potentially. It could be a relational intimacy with someone of the opposite sex or even friendships. And I think that's the world's formula for happiness. Get more stuff, have more physical pleasure, and do it with people that you love, right? And if you think about it, every single one of us wants to be happy. We do. Everyone is looking for happiness. That's just, that's um, the reason why just about every Hollywood movie has a happy ending, right? If someone is down, we tell them, don't worry, be happy. Um, some are happy as a clam, while others are slap happy, trigger happy, and even happy go lucky. We have happy meals and happy birthdays. There are happy campers, happy hours, happy days, and every one of us wants to live happily ever after, right? This is a part of who we are as people. We wanna be happy. And so the question comes to us tonight, where do we find happiness? Because no doubt, many here are struggling with just the basics of being happy. You're pursuing happiness. You're trying to find out how to be fulfilled and how to be happy in life. And it's not always easy. 
You might look to a show like Oprah or Dr. Phil or try to wade through the endless stream of self-help books or websites that have been written or, or podcasts trying to find out how can I find happiness in life. And you might even ask the question, can I truly be happy in a world that's filled with so much misery and so much pain, with so much going on around me out there at the Ukraine and in Russia, crazy things happening out there with COVID surging, with political unrest in the United States. Or maybe you get a little closer to home in your own family and you're like, how can I be happy? My parents aren't happy. My family's not happy. There's conflict everywhere. There's health issues. There just seems like this entire place is ratcheted down and it's so difficult. So can I truly be happy? I have a 7 a.m. class. That doesn't make me happy, right? I, I have to go to work every day at a boring dead-end job where I make minimum wage. That doesn't make me happy. So I'm under financial stress. I've got academic pressures. I've got a difficult family life, maybe even some health issues lingering, and the insecurities that are revolving around the future. And you ask yourself, I, I, I want to be happy, but I don't know how to find happiness. If you ask the question, can I be happy, I will tell you right now, the answer is an unequivocal, unequivocal, is that right, Megan? Unequivocal, yes. Can you truly be happy? Definitely, yes. Tonight, I wanna lay out a proven method for finding happiness, for finding blessing or fulfillment. And if you follow the instructions given here tonight, you can bank on the fact that your life will be full of reward and happiness and blessing. Sound too good to be true? Like some kind of really lame infomercial? I got it. That's fine. It's not because there is a secret to happiness. And it comes wrapped up in the six verses of a psalm that was written over 4,000 years ago that was put as the very first psalm in the Psalter so that we would read it and understand it like a bookend to get us into the songs that give us praise to God. Now, in these verses, we're going to see the key that unlocks happiness. And we're also going to see conversely that those who don't follow this pathway or this formula will experience not only a lack of fulfillment, not only regret, but ultimately will experience the judgment of God. And so I said this, but make sure you're there. Psalm chapter one, because I want you to see this in your Bible. And as I told you when we started, all we want to do here is open the word of God and tell you what, what God says in his word. That's our mission and our goal to help you know Jesus Christ. So we're going we're gonna to take a look at this together. And really tonight, we're going to see two pathways Pretty simple, our outline, and because this is how the psalm is set up. It's the pathway to happiness and the pathway to misery. And the psalmist is going to compare and contrast these two styles of life. Okay, Let, let's go ahead and read this together, and then we'll dive in. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I love this psalm. I love this psalm. It is so good for my own heart, and I hope you'll find that too as well. But I want you to notice those first few words of of verse 1. Look down there. It says, how blessed is the man. How blessed is the woman. And we could retranslate this to say, how happy is the man, or how happy is the woman. It's very reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, isn't it? In the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, you guys remember that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, on and on it goes. There's the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be comforted. We're not in Matthew 5. I have to go read that later. doesn't matter. He, I'm just saying it's reminiscent of that. To be blessed is to be supremely happy or to be fulfilled. And what the psalmist is laying out here is how you and I can have this type of blessing, fulfillment, um, and, and happiness in our own lives. And like I said, he's setting up a contrast between the, the way of happiness and the way of misery. Okay? So let's look at the first one. We, we're just going to call this the path to happiness. The path to happiness is found in verses 1 through 3. Let me re- read verse 1 together, and then we're going to tear it apart. He says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now here the psalmist begins by telling us that if you want to have a happy life, here are the things that you need to avoid. Here are the things of what not to do. We could summarize this verse by saying the happy person stays away from sin. The godly person is not entertained or infatuated with sin, not allured by the promises and pleasures of this world. Sin is defined as anything that goes against God's stated commands. Anything that doesn't please him, anything that doesn't give him honor or glory is sin. And the psalmist is saying to stay away from these things. This person turns away then from wickedness. Like Joseph, they have trained themselves to run from sin. They don't coddle sin. They don't trifle with it. They don't allow it in their presence. It is seen as a deadly poison that needs to be avoided at all costs. There's an old Puritan in the 1600s named John Owen, and he said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, verse one gets more specific than just saying don't sin. Hey, everybody, avoid sin. Look at the text. Look back there at verse one. It says there, and he gives three descriptors. He says, you are to not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, you're not going to their counsel and listening. You're not looking for their advice or seeking the opinions or the guidance of this world. You are wary of their wisdom. James 3.15, it says, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, even demonic. So let me ask you a question. Do you walk in the counsel of the wicked? Maybe we can ask this way. Where do you seek counsel? Do you seek counsel at all? Where do you go for advice when you're making big decisions? Some of you seek out counselors who will tell you what you want to hear. For some of you, your counselors are your best friends. For some of you, your counsel is the voice inside of your own head, and that's as far as it goes. You think that you're right in your own eyes. You're pretty strong. You're pretty smart. You're pretty driven. You're going to figure it out. And so you listen to the voice in your head more than you listen to the people around you. But I hope that your closest confidants and your greatest counselors are godly and wise people who will help you to make biblically informed decisions. 
Proverbs 13, 20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Which are you? Are you a wise person, a wise, a wise guy, or are you a fool? Look back at verse 1. It's not just about walking in the counsel of the wicked. Look at the second phrase there. Nor stand in the path of sinners. You are no longer walking around. Okay, so if you get this, the picture, you're going you're gonna to see this progression. You're no longer walking around, hanging out, kind of with the bros, doing your thing. You have now are, uh, have moved to a stop. You are standing in the path of sinners. You are right there with them. You are where they are. You are doing what they do. Sure, I'll go to that movie with you. Yes, I'll go to that concert with you. Sure, I'll, I'll go to that party with you. You are, you are spending time with habitual sinners, with those people who desire to pull you away from the Lord. After spending time with them, you're not closer to Christ. You're farther from him because they're interested only in the things of this world and to spend time with them is spiritual suicide. And you know what I'm talking about. You know that group of friends. You know that influence at work. In 2 Chronicles 13, 7, speaking of um, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, listen to this. It says, And worthless men gathered around him, scoundrels who proved too strong for him when he was young and timid and could not hold his own against them. You ever feel like that? You get in with a certain crowd, and as soon as you're with that group of friends, your language changes. The things you watch, the things you do changes the things that, that, that you entertain yourself with changes, that group of friends is trouble. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, it's a problem. I, I remember as a kid, my parents used to put me on a plane and send me to New York every summer. My grandma had a, a, a place in New York on the beach, um, sandy white beach with this incredible wooden boardwalk in the back. It was this picturesque little town. And they put me on a plane because they were working and I'd fly out there. I was 13, 14 years old to stay with my grandma who literally had no rules, no regulations. She'd give me 20 bucks in the morning and say, have a great time. And I'd be out running like a pack of wolves with, with my friends that I made while I was there at the beach, doing whatever I wanted to do with whoever I wanted to do it with, staying out as late as I wanted with literally zero accountability and zero rules. As a high schooler, that's like a dream come true, okay? Um, but I hung out with a crowd that was bad news. They were into every earthly pleasure. And so, you know what I found out as a Christian young man? Spending time with them ruined me. I was drawn into the things that they were entertained by. What they were entertained by became what I was entertained by. I found myself in the path of sinners. And listen, I'm just admitting this. It was devastating to my Christian walk. It was. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, Solomon says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. It's verse 15. You see, the happy man, if you want to walk on the pathway to happiness and be in the, in the, um, in the flow of blessing... You cannot stand in the, you cannot walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners. And, and he says, thirdly there, look back at verse one, you cannot sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, now again, there's progression. You're, first you're kind of walking around and then you're stopped. And now what, you're, what are you doing? You're actually sitting from walking to standing to sitting. This is the pathway to unbelief and ultimately to rejecting God. To sit with scoffers is a scary thing. 
because you're in the seat with them and you become one of them. What do scoffers do? They mock and they ridicule. They're jaded. They sit in the seat of judgment on the world around them and on God himself. Do you have friends who are scoffers? You have people at work, people in your family that look down on, criticize, make fun of your faith, make fun of God. Everything to them is an irreverent joke. They blame God for the problems on the world. They belittle him. They question his very existence and they hate him. Blinded by sin with a seared conscience, they want nothing to do with God. I've been around student ministries for a long time, a long time. I've seen the process of somebody walking, standing, sitting happen so many times and it's heartbreaking every time. One of the most heartbreaking for, for Tracy and I was a young woman that we invested in for years. She was part of our high school group, then part of our college group. She's part of our student leadership. She went overseas for a semester to serve the Lord on, a mission, on the missions field. She went to a Christian college. I officiated her wedding. She had two beautiful girls. And then slowly but surely she started listening to the world. She started walking in the counsel of the wicked. And she starts standing in the path of sinners. And eventually she found herself seated with the scoffers. First she questioned. Then she doubted. Then she outright rejected. And finally she openly mocked. She publicly has criticized our church for brainwashing her and saying that this is responsible for all of the problems in her life as she walked away from her husband and her girls. She sat in these same seats, and then one day with a hard heart, she walked away. How, how do you get to that point? Because you're sitting here right now saying, that's not going to be me. I'm not doing that. And I'm telling you, she was right here, singing with her hands raised, ready to serve, completely engaged with what was happening. If you allow your own sinful desires to lurk in the recesses of your heart unchecked, if you don't kill sin, if you don't fight it, if you surround yourself with the wrong people, before long, you'll find yourself beginning to justify your sin, beginning to boast in it, and pretty soon, that becomes your identity. For some of you, Christianity seems so real when you were a kid. It really did. You believed everything. God made the world in six days. Jesus really did walk on water. He multiplied five loaves and fed 5,000. And now you think, well, that's just kind of good, you know, child time stories, bedtime stories for kids. David and Goliath, really cool about conquering the big guy. You know, so great moral stories. And you go from belief to unbelief to what you call fantasy. These are just made up stories to help kids sleep at night and help their parents keep them in line. This is that pathway down. In the end, this young lady left the church, divorced her husband, and sat down at a banquet of sinful pleasure with a seared conscience, a hard heart, and she openly mocks God. And it all begins with who you spend time with and whether or not you're in this flow. Okay, so can I give you some really practical application? Here, here's something so important about your life of happiness, but so basic. Be careful who you spend time with. Be careful who you give your heart to. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says it best. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 
Those who you spend time with will ultimately define you. You will take on their identity, not the other way around. Your friends have such a strong influence, and so it's critical that you're cautious with who you give your time to. And even worse in terms of a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or even more important, I should say. So what does your friend group look like? What does it look like right now? If the people you spend most of your time with or your best friend are not believers, when you hang out, you know, 80% of your time is with this group and your church friends, whatever, 20% over here, something like that, I would just tell you that you should be concerned. Because the Christian who's desiring to walk uh, in what we're going to see here in the way of happiness is a person that surrounds themselves with the people of God, surrounds themselves with the things of God because they want to be about God and what he's doing. And the more you spend time off over there with that group of friends, the more dangerous it is. And so I'm just telling you, it's madness. And some of you need to cut off those relationships and even find new friends. Yeah, that's tough. I got it. I got it. You might be alone for a while, but you know what? Better to be alone and pursuing Christ than walking, standing, sitting in the pathway of sin, heading towards open mockery. If you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if you're, let me say it this way. If you're somebody that claims the name of Christ, I am a Christian, and your boyfriend or girlfriend is not a Christian, then I want to give you some advice. You ready? Tonight, when we finish here, Break up with them, period. We can spend time explaining why the Bible teaches that. 2 Corinthians 6, Psalm chapter 1. You cannot be with somebody if you claim Christ who doesn't love Christ. They're not going to draw you toward him. They're not going to help you be more like Christ. They're not going to help you walk with God. All they're going to do is pull you farther away. You need to get out of that relationship. It's going to bring you down. Now look back at verse 2. I know that's heavy. I know all that's heavy. But look at verse 2. Don't do these three things, stand, walk, stand, or sit. But verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Not only does this person avoid wickedness, but look at that word. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. It is the chief desire. It is the greatest pleasure. Verse 2, it's a meditation day and night. That is to say this person is all about the word of God, reading it, um, pouring over it, memorizing it, studying it. Psalm 119.47 says, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. And this gives the picture of a person who's sitting with their Bible open all the time. They chew on it. They keep it always in their thought. It permeates their life both during the day and at night. Now, it's interesting. Look at that word there um, in verse 2. That's, it's that word law. Law. That's interesting, right? Because when we think about law, we think about rules and regulations, right? We think about things that we cannot do. We think about obligation and duty and things that are restrictions. Something that's designed to limit our freedoms, and most people, and maybe this is you, look at the Bible that way. The Bible is just there as a book of rules to box me in and keep me from really doing the things I want to do. Everybody else gets to do these things, but the Bible has these robotic rules that are so outdated that just hold me back from actually having fun. But the psalmist knows that this isn't true of God's laws. Because in James 1.21, I should say it's in the Bible, James 1.21, it calls the Bible, the law of liberty. 
Listen, I got it. God's rules are in some ways restrictive because he doesn't want you to go down the path of misery. He wants to reward you with a happy life. And if you look at his word, it's really like a, um, uh, like a headwater that comes down and it hits a point and it can go one of two ways. Either you're going to obey God's commandments and head towards the path of blessing or you're going to disobey God's commands and head toward the path of misery. It's really that simple. This is not just a boring religion that traps you and forces you to give up all the fun stuff. Christianity frees you from the bondage of sin. And it gives you freedom from death and freedom from judgment. John 8, 32, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And so the psalmist is rejoicing and even delighting in the law of God, in this amazing book, in all the promises of God. It becomes the favorite pastime, the hobby, the place where your mind goes in the downtime. It's where we dwell, what we think on. It becomes central to our hearts and life. Why? Why is that so important? Why is it always read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible? Here's the answer. Are you ready? Because it's only in the Bible that you and I can know God. It's only there that he's revealed himself. That's not entirely true. He's revealed himself in two places. One is in nature. And I sat out here with a young lady last night who was struggling right over there on the pickleball court. And I said to her, I know you're in a lot of physical pain right now, but just for a moment as the sun is setting and you feel the warmth of that sun on you and the breeze blowing and the beautiful blue sky, take just a minute to recognize that God is here right now. He has revealed himself to us in this amazing nature and we know that God exists. But he's also revealed himself to us specifically in his word. And so as we open the Bible, we can see who God is. We can know the creator God. We, we, we have an opportunity to have a personal relationship with him. In John 5, 39, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And the point is simply this. The scriptures are the gateway to help us to understand and know God. It's here that we commune with him that we see him as our loving father who is, who is gracious and kind, who has adopted us as sons and daughters. It's here that we meet the son who is our precious redeemer and friend. It is here that we learn of the Holy Spirit who seals us and empowers us to live the Christian life. You see, the Bible's not a boring book and reading it is not a chore. It is not a duty, it is a delight. And anytime that we can't seem to get, um, to get into the word, it's a sure sign there's something wrong with our hearts that we have drifted, and you've felt this, and I have too. We all have. There's times where, where you're like, I don't want to read my Bible today. It just feels like a dusty old book. And so your Bible comes off the shelf for its weekly trip to church, and it goes right back there on the end. It's like, cool, we got a field trip in, right? It gets really excited. But it really, really, the, the goal is to open the Word of God and let it speak into your life. And the reason why we struggle with this, it's as if we had a jar full of stuff. We, we pile in our job, we pile in our financial obligations, and we pile in our relationships, we pile in our schoolwork, and you put all this stuff into this jar of your life, and it's so full of stuff, there's no room for God. And so your life is built on all of these other things, and you cannot delight in the law of the Lord because you're delighting in entertainment, and you're delighting in your boyfriend, and you're delighting in making money, and in material possessions, and you're delighting in your sin. And all of those need to be stripped away so that we can be an empty vessel that can be filled by God through his word. Now, some of you have never read your Bibles outside of church. 
and I got it. Some of you are brand new to this. Some of you have never had what we call a quiet time or a devotional time. Maybe you started one when you got back from camp and it lasted for five days, and then you really don't read your Bible. And I, I, if you're new or, or if you're not new, you've been here for 10 years and you still aren't reading your Bible, can I just encourage you to open your Bible and just spend some time every day, five minutes, read one chapter in your Bible? This is how we know God. This is not enough for us. We've got to be in the Bible. And if you don't know where to start, oh man, would I love to have a conversation with you after. Where's the professor? Is he here? Man. You're right there. <laughs> the professor and I would love to talk to you tonight and just show you a couple different plans of basic ideas. Hey, Sean. Hey, Chris. I've never read my Bible. Where should I start? Oh, we would love that conversation. Don't be embarrassed. Don't, don't feel like, you know what? I'm too ashamed because I know I should be doing this. Just come have the conversation with us and, and we'll walk this through with you. It's an awesome opportunity for us to be encouraged and to help you with that process. Okay. The, the word of God is our delight. I love that phrase. All right. The psalmist says in verse three, look back at your Bibles. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. This is a blessed man. This is a blessed woman. They're happy and they will be like a tree. The picture here is so cool, right? It's a, it's a just imagine your mind a tree that draws its nourishment from an abundantly flowing stream that it sits adjacent to. It sinks its, root down, its roots down deep and draws um, water even in a dry and barren land. You got the picture of kind of a desert with a little oasis with a river running down and there is just this massive tree and it's healthy, and it's bearing fruit, and it's successful, we'll find out. And it's in, a, it's in a difficult, barren place, but because it's right by the water, it grows. That's what it's saying here. It yields its fruit in its season, verse 3 says. Constantly bearing fruit. This person that's delighting in God is in his word is constantly bearing good fruit. And its leaf does not wither, verse 3. It's stable even in the hardest of times when trials and tribulations come, when you lose the job, when your parents split, when you get kicked out of the house, get in a car accident, health issues, fail a class, your dog throws up on you, you're going to run in your stockings, whatever it is. Like me, when I was going to a meeting last week and I went to iron my shirt, first time ever, I, I put the iron, I was in a hotel, put the iron down and went to move the cable around and I came back over and there's a hole in my shirt. And I'm like, that's cool. This could be a great meeting. Like I got a hole literally right here in my shirt. Like, so on your best day and on your worst day, this, this person is firmly rooted. They bear fruit. The leaf isn't withering because the roots go deep down to nourishment in the word of God. And they're built and based on the promises of God. The foundation is sure. And so when the storms of life come, it doesn't matter what's happening up here because they're solid and built on the rock of God's word. So good. It's uh, Psalm 92, verse, four, verse 12. Listen to this, this verse. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. I love that. It's the picture of as you get older, you get better. You think about age and you're like, I'm not getting old. This guy, he's already crazy. And when I'm that age, I'm going to be way cooler than him. And my parents are just looney tunes. And my grandparents are missing teeth. I don't know what to do. Okay, listen, in old age, they're still yielding fruit. 
is so good. It gives the picture of vitality. This is a person that's lived through all the trials of life, all the seasons of life, and they're still being blessed by God. Why? Because they have come to the book and they've built their life on that foundation. And it never lets them down, not in the beginning of life and not in the end of life. Prosperous in everything. Look at verse 3 again. It says, in whatever he does, he prospers. <coughs> Excuse me. It's not just spiritually prosperous. It's in everything he does. Whatever he does, he prospers. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. We don't believe that give God $10 and he gives you back $100. We don't, we don't believe in um, that type of doctrine. It's not some trick to get God to bless you back. This is the person who's blessed by God. Watch this. Because at that headwater of life, when they've had to make a decision, they choose to be blessed in the word of God and to obey God. And God, when you obey him in his word, gives blessing. It's just the simple mathematics. He's given rules to live by. You follow his rules, blessing comes as a result. He gives rules to live by. You don't follow his commands and misery is the result. That's the simple meaning of the scriptures. It's not a trick, but the person who's blessed by God delights in the law of the Lord, obeys his commandments and God showers blessings into their life. Meditating on scripture and delighting the Lord makes you firm, makes you fruitful, makes you prosperous and brings happiness and blessing into your life. Have you tried it? Have you tasted to see that the Lord is good? This is where it's at, my friends. And if you haven't, then you're missing it. And if, the, if, if you come to church and like, this is boring, but there's cute girls here. I got it. There are cute girls here. But that's not the point. We come here to open the word of God, to let God speak into our hearts. We come on Sunday so that God can speak through his word to us. We open his Bible every morning or every night so that God can speak to us and we can understand his will for our life and live a life of blessing. So have you tried it? Do you know that by experience? I'm just telling you, I do. I do. I, and it's such a blessing to know God and to be secure in difficult times because his promises are true today and forever. Now, that's the pathway to happiness, but there's also the pathway to misery. And this Psalm gives us both. And in verses four through six, the, the, the psalmist tells us what happens if you reject this and what happens if you go the opposite direction. So look back at your Bibles at verse four. Look at, look at how he says, there should be like a big however here, but there's not. It just says this, the wicked are not so. It's a contrast. This is the opposite. This is the opposite path of that headwater. This is the opposite of everything in verses one through three. It's the second pathway. It's the other choice. There is no third category here. There's no, I'm on the fence right now. You're either righteous or you're wicked. You're either godly or you're ungodly. You're either walking towards God or you're walking away from God. You're either on the path to blessing, listen, or you're on the path to misery. The wicked do not delight in God's law. They reject it, choosing to live according to their own desires to listen to that voice inside their head. They don't withstand difficult circumstances like a tree that has deep roots. They don't bear fruit. They don't prosper in the eyes of God. Look back at verse four. It says, they are like, here's their picture, not like this amazing tree. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. This is the second metaphor, and it describes the person who rejects God. The picture is of the harvest at a grain field. Have you ever been to the, the grain field at a harvest? 
Neither have I. But let's just picture in our minds that the grain has been cut down and it's gathered together on the threshing floor and, and it's then crushed. Okay, so it's, the grain are like little, I don't know, like kind of like little seeds and nuts and, and they grow on these, on these branches. And then it's really good because that's where bread comes from. Okay, anyway, so they take this, they take this big mill and, and they run it over like a big stone and it crushes the grain. And inside of the sheaf is just the little kernel, just the grain piece that's going to be taken and ground up. And that's what we're going to make our delicious gluten-filled bread out of. The sheath and the leaf and the stick and all the other stuff is the chaff, okay? It's the outer um, lighter shell in the lining. And what the farmer does is he goes in and he takes a, the, the, um, the pitchfork and he throws it all up into the air like this. And as the wind blows, the heavier grain falls straight down back to the earth and the chaff just blows away. And so they just, you've seen that picture, right? The guy just throwing this up and you're like, what is he doing? That's what he's doing. Okay, and anything that's left on the floor after they're done gets swept up and thrown into the fire. Literally, the chaff is worthless. And the psalmist uses this picture to describe the life of all who deny God. All who go down their own pathway. It's futile, it's empty, and in, 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 the, in the picture of the psalm, it is worthless. And worse than that, verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. That's a, that's a scary verse. Not only is their life like chaff that is blown away without a ton of purpose, but when the judgment comes, they will not stand, verse 5. They're brought into the presence of divine holiness, and there they cannot stand up. They cannot lift their heads. There is no assurance. There is no confidence. There is no defense. And they are set aside, and they are cut down altogether. They may have lived a life of earthly success. They may have been a somebody, but in that great day, they will not stand. Philippians 2.9 says that their knee will bow and their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And while they lived like kings and emperors on earth, they will live like paupers in eternity because they did not bend the knee to Jesus Christ. The judgment is certain. It is inescapable inescapable. There is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no ability to outmaneuver, no explanation, no diversion, no excuse. There are no more chances. Judgment is sure. It is certain. It is final. And in that day, all flesh will stand before God and will be blown away by the fury of his wrath. There will be no mercy. There will be no grace. The end comes swiftly and destruction falls on all who reject God and his word. In the book of Obadiah, which is in your Old Testament, I won't make you turn there because it would take us the rest of the night to find it. But in verse 3, it says this, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Then listen to the Lord. Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. <sighs> or Malachi 3, 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Answer the question, who can stand in the day of judgment? Who can come into the presence of a holy God without being consumed? Moses knew that if he saw God face to face, he would die. 
Remember the story of Uzzah, who the, the Ark of the Covenant was tilting and he reached out just to stabilize it so it wouldn't fall over and God struck him dead because a sinful man cannot touch the holiness of God? What about Isaiah in chapter 6? There are, wing, there are angels there that have six wings and they, even these holy angels take two of those wings and cover their face because they cannot look into the presence of the holiness of God. So how can a sinful man or a sinful woman look into the presence of a holy God? And the answer is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21, because all are headed towards judgment and on this pathway, but how can we be made right with God? That's answered in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5. It says this, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God took all of our sin and put it onto Christ. And he took all of Christ's righteousness and he put it onto us. And he treated Christ as if, we had, as if he had lived our sinful life. And he treated us as if we had lived Christ's perfect life. That's the exchange. So God looks at the Christian, the person that by faith has put their trust in Christ and turned from their sin... And he looks at us and all he sees is the perfection of his son. Remember his son? He said, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's how he looks at you, Christian, because he sees the righteousness of Christ. And he looked at Christ as if you had lived, excuse me, he had lived your life and he pours out his judgment there. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Simply, God sent his son to stand in our place and take the judgment that we deserve. Jesus bore our sins. Isaiah 53 says he was crushed for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. He paid it all. And for those who come to him in faith, turn from their sin and submit to him as Lord, there is forgiveness of sin. And watch this, bring it all back together for you. In the day of judgment, when you stand before God, you can stand um, 1 John 2.28 says we can stand in confidence and not shrink away in shame from him. Or Jude 24, we can stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. How can that happen? We're not cut down in judgment because Christ took the judgment. He removed that obstacle and brought us into the presence of God so that we can enjoy relationship with him. But not so for those who are wicked, according to Psalm 1. They cannot come where the righteous are. It says there that the wicked, verse 5, will not stand the judgment, nor sinners, it says, in the assembly of the righteous. They benefited in this life. They lived high, enjoyed the finer things, but they cannot come where the righteous are. They cannot cross the gap into heaven. It looks forward to a day where Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. And it's the plain teaching of scripture. There is a judgment day. It's true. It's coming. And it's either you're going to be in the path of blessing towards happiness and obedience, or you're going to be in the path of misery and disobedience towards judgment. That's what the scripture teaches. Look at verse six. He wraps all this up and I'm going to do the same. The summary statement for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Ah, wow. That's good. Just for a minute, stop and embrace this truth. The Lord knows. He knows your heart, Christian. And it should bring tremendous hope to you. Because even Peter that day where he, in John 21, Jesus came to him after he denied Christ and said, do you love me? And he asked three times. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. 
Jesus asked again, yes, Lord, a little bit less excited. You know I love you. Jesus asked a third time, and Peter said, Lord, you know what? You know all things. You know that I love you. you basically, you know my heart. And in my failure, and in, in all the trial of life where I walk away and do stupid things, you know that deep down inside I do love you. And the hope here is that God knows the way of the righteous. He knows what's happening in your heart. And there's, there is um, an intimate acquaintance with you because you belong to him. And he sees your toil. And he sees all your efforts. And he's there early in the morning as you seek to spend time with him. And he's there late at night as you offer prayers before bed. He is there and seeing every good deed you do when no one else sees it. He is the one who sees in secret and rewards in secret. He sees your struggles, your sacrifice, your service. He's aware of every minute of lost sleep, of every dollar that you give to the church, of every ounce of sweat dedicated to building his kingdom and serving him, and he will reward it. He knows it all. He knows the way of the righteous. I couldn't help but think, I, I saw a little tiny sparrow, like just a little bird, fly. I was at Palomar Hospital in San Diego and a big, huge glass side of the building. And it just went shh, and straight to the ground, dead. And you'd think to yourself, I mean, even if it didn't know it was, there was glass there, you'd think that as it's flying, why doesn't it try to avoid the other bird? That it sees... No, I'm just kidding. Okay. That's a Jerry Seinfeld joke. Leave that one there. This bird hits falls to the ground, and I'm walking by on my way into a business meeting, and I could not help but think of Matthew 6, where Jesus says, your father knows when even a sparrow falls from the sky, how much more does he care for you? Oh, I love that. I love that because I need that reassurance in my own heart when I'm struggling with unbelief, when I'm working through anxieties and doubt, when lusts capture my heart, when there are days that I don't want to love the Lord and my heart is just given to other things, it says here, he knows the way of the righteous. He knows what's in you and Jesus will hold on to his own. He will not lose a single one. And so in all the struggle of life, in all the trial of physical pain and of issues with health and relational turmoil, he knows the way of the righteous. He knows you and he will hold you until the end. And when we fail, he forgives. But look back there at verse 6. It says, he finishes the psalm by saying, but, here's the contrast again, the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. God has no care. God has no love. God has no special attention. His eye is not uniquely turned like it is for the believer toward the wicked. He has no mercy on those who reject him. In Psalm 145, 20, it says, The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The wicked mock the righteous for living such stupid, prudish lives. I talked to our good friend Micah Loomis today, who's serving our country in... Afghanistan? Kuwait. He's in Kuwait, right? I talked to him today. He just, he texts me. He goes, hey man, I'm struggling. He's been there for about a month. He goes, can we talk? I said, sure. We got, we hopped on FaceTime and started talking. It was, it was him walking around at night, FaceTime audio as he was getting ready for bed. And he just said, it's getting really tough here. I'm by myself. 
I'm outside of the, of the assembly of the righteous in the framework here. I'm out here trying to stand for Christ, but there are no other, no other believers. And you can pray for him because he's in the battle fighting. And it was a cool conversation. But he said this. He goes, right now people are saying, and they're making fun of me, calling me gay, telling me that I'm just an idiot, all sorts of things. What, why? Because I'm not actively pursuing girls. I'm not taking part in the conversations. I'm not looking at the things. I'm not going after the women who are on base. I'm trying to honor Christ in my heart, um, in, in my mind, and in my actions. And I say, praise God for that, right? But, but that's it. The Lord keeps all who love him, holds us tight, no matter where we are. But it says there in Psalm 145, 20, but all the wicked he will destroy. The wicked mocked the righteous for having pure and holy lives. They thought um, they were on the road to happiness. That's the broad road, and it leads where? To destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so as we come to the end of this psalm, and we've seen these two paths, one path leads to happiness. One path leads to misery. One brings purpose, success, and blessing. The other, sadness, heartbreak and remorse and the question is which path are you on are you on the first path the path towards happiness and righteousness if you are can i just encourage you not to be jealous of your unsaved friends not to look over the over the fence as it were into what's happening in the world and be envious because you don't get to have the same level of fun and psalm 37 verse 1 the psalmist says do not fret because of evildoers do not be envious toward wrongdoers, for they will quickly wither like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a good word. And it's a timely word for us as we have a world that's so dark around us that's pulling us through temptation out to it. And God says, no, stay in the middle. Stay in the way of the righteousness and of righteous and delight yourself in me and in my word. And I will give you the desires of your heart. If you're not a Christian, then you've seen tonight, this is the story of Christianity. God offers blessing and happiness to you, but it comes only through his son. It does. And so happiness can only be found in Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you tonight, if you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, then we'd love to talk to you. We'd love that you keep coming and just keep asking questions and keep listening. We want to keep showing you what the Bible says about what it means to have a relationship with God. And all of us together want to walk in that pathway in the path of blessing closer to Christ. Yes? That's where we want to go. I told you the story of Ralph Maloon because a few years ago I had the, the privilege to meet him when we were touring the Nautique Boat Factory, friends, some friends of mine and I, in Florida. I'm a boater. That's whatever. I'm a nerd. It's fine. But he gave us a personal tour. Um, and it was years ago that he gave over the daily operations um, to somebody younger and better at business. But he's still there three days a week at 96 years old. Now, we established earlier that by the world standards, Ralph is a very successful and happy man. But when I got to spend time with him that morning, I found out that this man, who looks great from the outside to the world, has given away over 50% of his money to the Lord. He lives in a house that he paid $30,000 for. He's been married to the same woman for 76 years. 
the business that he built has a mission statement and it's plastered across the, the side of the, of the uh, warehouse, giant letters. It says this, building boats for the glory of God. It's just awesome, right? He told me that he went to those 80 countries and was sultans and sheiks and presidents and prime ministers, not just to sell boats, but to use that as a platform to go into closed countries to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the leaders of those countries. That's what he felt his mission was. The whole time we were together, 96 years old, this guy could not stop talking about Jesus Christ. He is a man who delighted in the Lord. And it was crazy, we went to breakfast and we're sitting at the Cracker Barrel and he just looks up at this young woman who's coming to, as our server, and he goes, do you know Jesus Christ? I need to tell you about the greatest love relationship I've had. And he just shared the gospel with her. And he sat with me and he told me as we drove him home because he can't drive himself anymore. So he, we drove him home and he said, young man, I want to encourage you. I'm in my forties, okay? Young man, I want to encourage you to keep pursuing Christ and running hard after him and keep sharing Christ with others. 96, and he is on fire. Ralph went home to be with the Lord a couple years ago, but I would tell you that's a happy man. That's a man who has lived a blessed life, not because he's a multimillionaire or has a business or been married for 76 years. It's because he made a decision as a young man to follow the way of God, to delight in the law of God, and God has blessed him all the way through all the way to glory. And I hope for you tonight, as you're working through which direction in life you're gonna go, that you would choose the pathway of happiness, which is the pathway of obedience, which is the pathway of following God and his word, and seek to love and honor Christ in your everyday life. Amen? Father, we are so grateful that we can be together tonight and open your word and spend time reading, studying, and even searching the very law of God. There is blessing and there is joy in your word because it shows us who you are. Lord, would you give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a desire to know you and to be even in your presence, in your word. We are so grateful for your Bible. We're so grateful for nights like this and even chances to sing as a response. For those here tonight who are not Christians, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you show them mercy? Would tonight be the day of salvation? We ask that you would save souls even tonight and draw people to yourself. We're so thankful that you've done that to so many in this room and ask that you would do it just one more time tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Song 21. Thank you, bro. Wow, what a powerful message.